Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 35 of the Speaking Club podcast. I told my friend Sandra that this show was all about after-dinner speaking, and she said, Did you know, in the olden days, the men and women went their separate ways after dinner? I said, never mind the olden days. That happens on most of my dates. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Bienvenue, willkommen, bienvenido, Juan Yang, Achalambika, Dobro Pochalovich. Howdy, partner. Well, I hope that means something to some of the show's global listeners, and I'm hoping I also haven't offended anyone. You don't know, in some languages, one vowel mispronounced could get you punched in the face. Anyway, that little lingual gallop around the world was to celebrate the fact that the Speaking Club podcast is now in 57 countries. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are in the world, and I hope you're getting value out of the show. And obviously, if you are, could you do me a big favour and give me a review and subscribe too? Anyway, (laughs) moving on. So if you haven't already gathered, this month is all about storytelling. And I thought it would only be right and proper to do a show primarily focused on after-dinner speaking. As of all of the forms of speaking, it's probably most closely related to storytelling. And when I was thinking about who could I get on the show to talk about this... The obvious choice was my guest, Jeremy Nicholas. Jeremy bucks the trend in many ways, but particularly in choosing not to specialise in a particular form of speaking. He does the lot, MC, keynote and after-dinner speaker. And he shares why they're different and what he does that makes him get booked so often to entertain after-dinner and lots more. Enjoy! He's an ex-TV and radio presenter and now after-dinner speaker, MC, compare and coach. And by all accounts, according to lots and lots of my previous guests, very funny guy. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Jeremy Nicholas. Yes, I think you've been misinformed. I'm not at all funny. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Well, we'll see. I'll, I'll try and be as dull as I can. Okay, right. Just to prove I'm not lying. <laughs> as I mentioned in the intro, you pretty much cover off all the bases as as a speaker, you know, a a keynote, an MC, Mm. after dinner, compare. But, you know, they're all a little different and not everyone who's listening may understand the difference. So could you take us through each one and explain what is the difference? Yeah, so I suppose the speaker is... Um, what most people would know is someone who speaks at an event and gets paid money for speaking. So that's, you know, you'd usually call them a keynote speaker and they're getting paid for their message an mc that's the person who comes on in between and says well wasn't that person great and pretends they like them and then <laughs> says uh don't forget the coffee break's coming up and you've got to select your breakout session but before that we've got the chief exec of the company and then pretend to be excited about them coming on so the mc is it's master of ceremonies so it's event host mc compare they're all pretty much the same thing really after dinner speaker is the speaker who after dinner gets up and 
says something and traditionally I suppose after dinner speakers are storytellers and it's more about entertainment so if I'm if I'm being a keynote speaker then there's got to be some value to what I'm giving if I'm doing an after dinner speech it's just about entertainment there's no message no one comes away from my after dinner speaking thinking I've changed their life but they probably will be smiling yeah um and then uh, yeah so they're the they're the main things so I, I suppose there is a slight difference between being a keynote speaker and a speaker the keynote one uh, event would be the main one who the event organizers have booked because they sum up the whole message of the day but I think lazily a lot of speakers say I'm a keynote speaker but actually there should only be one keynote in a day mm -hmm. so if there's eight people speaking only one of them's the keynote but eight of them will claim they are so do you ever get involved in we're talking about MC so sometimes there's also um if you like the MC that does uh, a charity auction or something like that would that fit in broadly with what you do as well yeah that's a slightly different skill sometimes people say we'd like you to MC our event and then they say well can you do the auction well that's a completely different thing really <laughs> yes. because well, I have done it um auction it, I mean, it's, it's quite a tricky thing I did one yeah, a room the other day and when I arrived the uh, the sound system wasn't really very good it was in a marquee it was a, a posh school and they had a marquee in the garden and they were raising money for their parent teachers association and they had two big speakers at the front but it didn't quite carry to the back and so you're having to walk around the table saying so we've got these tickets to see Beyonce at Wembley, uh, let's start it at £400 for these four tickets. So what, £500 over there? And then the people at the back can't quite hear. You know, they start talking and then it's, it's tricky. Yes. So auctioneering is a difficult skill. Um, I do it if I'm asked, but there's some people who just do that and they're, right. they're really good. Right, so what I want to find out as well. So, I mean, I know that a lot of the stuff that you talk about, and oh, this is what I understand, it may, may not be right, is... Mm. Um, stories from your your previous incarnations in broadcasting um i'd be interested to to cover off you know how did you get into to speaking was it an easy transition from being a broadcaster um were you always a broadcaster can i have it, sort of a, a brief synopsis of you really mm -hmm. i wasn't always a broadcaster because for some of my life i was a child <laughs> and they, they don't let you do that. But um, for most of my adult life, I was. I went to university and did quite a boring degree. And I then, uh, it didn't really have any creativity and it was a, it was a form of engineering. Oh. Um, and so I started doing student radio in the evenings. I just started presenting a show on the university radio station. So that's how I got into broadcasting. And then in my final year, I was destined to go and work for British Steel for the next 40 years of my life, collapse testing North Sea oil pipelines yeah. at their research centre in Corby in Northamptonshire. And I just thought, look, you only live once. Why am I going to be collapse testing North Sea oil pipelines? That can't be right. So uh, over the Easter holiday, my final year, um, I, I went and had a, a, a volunteer week with a radio station, Pennine Radio in Bradford, and loved it. And then uh, applied to do a postgrad radio journalism course, and then left. And of course, everyone thought I was mad yeah. uh, at the end. You know, they said, well, so you're not going to be in? You've done that degree. No, you're not going to do it. I'm going to go on the radio. I had telling my parents, and my mum was furious because she always thought I should have a sensible job. And she actually said, "Who would want to listen to your boring voice?" No, I know she's very <laughs> supportive. And I said, "Well." I don't think I'll use the same voice, you know, because obviously when you ring your parents from university uh, on the phone, 
you know, you get, and they say, what's, what have you been up to? And you go, oh, not much. You know, what's that? You know, no, nothing really. How's college? Yeah, all right. But obviously on the radio, I wasn't going to be like that. I was, you know, that's how 20-something people speak to their parents. Um, anyway, so I, I did this postgraduate year and loved it and just realised that that was for me. And then had a year in commercial radio and then joined the BBC and I, you know, I trained as a news reporter, but found that I could get paid exactly the same amount of money for doing sports reporting. And it meant I could go and watch football and just shout and be excited. So I did that. And that was lovely. Um, and then just the classic route, really local radio, then national radio, local TV, national TV. Um, and then I started to sort of come down the other side when I went back to regional TV yeah, and it was a region that wasn't even my region and I thought I don't know if you ever watch Alan Partridge yeah but I, I thought I'm, I'm a little bit like Alan Partridge here and I used to be on national telly and now I'm doing regional and if, if I'm not careful I'm going to be on some digital station in Norwich <laughs> and they'll be pulping my autobiography and I'll you know and, and once I realized that I, I didn't enjoy Alan Partridge as much because it almost became like a documentary about me <laughs> so um yeah, that's how I got into broadcasting. How I got into speaking is if you're on, if you're the man off the radio, you often get asked to open things or yeah. speak at things. I think my first sort of corporate one as an MC was in 1994. Wow. And it was on the two, the, the cruise ship. And I had to, uh, every morning and every evening of this conference interview the speakers who were coming up and at the end of the day do a sort of bit of facilitating asking questions of the audience and it was for three days and I know it was in 1994 because it was the World Cup the Football World Cup in America was happening at the same time and I'd been promised that I could watch the football during the day as long as I was available for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening to run these bits on the stage and then they realized a lot of people were bunking off the conference to watch the football. So they blacked it out on the screens. And so I was on the QE2 all day with nothing to do. And oh, it's, no. it's quite a small ship actually to walk. So I went to the captain and said, look, I did this on the agreement. I could watch the football. And he said, yeah, well, don't tell anyone, but if you go to channels 98 and 99 on your television in your cabin, that's where the football is. We've put it there because the, the Greek and the Spanish and the Italians and the crew were all threatening to mutiny. So that was my first one, 1994. Wow, and it's, and it's been, been getting better, better from there. It's been getting better and better, yeah. But it's, yeah. It does sound like your life has been punctuated by big footballing events. I don't know, is that fair to say? Well, I always, yeah, I, I always map out my life in football. So I know that um, where I, I grew up in so my family's from Cambridgeshire but yeah. we moved to London when I was six and uh, I lived in East London well my family were there as well that was lucky because I was only a child <laughs> when I was 12 we moved out to East Anglia to uh, to Suffolk and that was the year West Ham won the cup and that's my team and then the year I went to university West Ham won the cup and I started thinking every time I moved house West Ham would win the cup so I then just kept moving house deliberately trying to <laughs> bring silverware but actually the last time my team won a trophy was the year that um i went to university 1980 wow okay cool mm. and i understand as well you've done a bit of stand-up comedy or that's what i've heard is it true and how did that come about yeah um so uh, i probably should tell you in between I, I i was on the radio for years 
and people kept saying, oh, you're funny. Um, and eventually I thought, okay, well, I'll give stand-up a go. So usually when I would split up with a girlfriend, I would decide to do something different just to take my mind off things. So I split up with one girlfriend and I went vegetarian for 14 years. And then I split up with another girlfriend and decided to become a stand-up comic. And that would be about 1999, I think. Um, and I did 26 open spots. So I never got paid for it. 26 open spots where you just do 10 minutes in a club. Yeah. And, and everyone knows that you're new. And so they don't, they don't expect very much. And of those 26, 23 of them went really well. And I was delighted. And three of them were awful. But unfortunately, it's the three that were awful that I just remember so well. And I just thought, I'm not sure this is for me, really. And I don't think I really wanted it enough. Yeah. Um, the other people I was doing it with at the time, uh, there was a guy who worked in a chicken factory, a couple of people who were teachers, there was a taxi driver, and I was presenting the breakfast show on BBC London, which was kind of my dream job, really, because I consider myself a Londoner, and I was presenting breakfast on the BBC, and I thought... Why do, why do I want to do stand-up? Yeah. Because the, the established route into stand-up is you do sort of two years of open spots and then you start getting paid 50 quid for 20 minutes and then maybe 100 quid. Um, and I was, you know, the BBC on the radio. So I, I didn't have the hunger that the others had and they all went on to do really well. And I thought, oh, I might go back to that at some point. But I, I never have. I now do after dinner speaking which is more storytelling than comedy um it's funny but it's different in that if you do stand-up you, you know you need about four laughs a minute really yes. whereas i might do one laugh every two minutes because i'm telling a story and then you know you get there might be a funny ending or there might be a funny moment along the way but it's about the story it's not about trying to make people laugh but if they're yeah. smiling and they clap at the end that's fine i don't need <laughs> all the time I did a course uh-huh. last year just just to hone my um, sort of joke writing really for my stand-up stuff. I did a, a course by a guy called Lewis Bryan in St Albans, who's a stand-up comic. Yes, and it was yeah. yeah, and he's really good, and he really helped me with how to edit it and you know lose all the bits that you don't need. And he reminded me of a really good lesson that you know when you write comedy, it's best just to write loads of things about stuff that annoys you. And yes. then, and then go deeper and go deeper. And so I do that exercise with him, and I'd write like four things that annoy me, and I say, "What else? What else annoys you about that?" And I go, "I think I'm done with those four. No, what else annoys you about that?" And you just keep. And I'd want to punch him, but <laughs> eventually it would be like the fifth thing would come out. He'd have to beat it out of me, and it would be the best of the five. Yeah. So you yeah. think, okay, there is value in that. And then he was saying, "Oh, you've got to, you've got to do this. You, you, you know, you're really funny. You've got to do this. You can be getting slots. You know, you could be." And we, I looked at the finances of it and there'd be things like, you know, you might drive to Exeter yeah. to do 20 minutes and you'd get a hundred pounds and you wouldn't get any petrol money. You get home at two or three in the morning, but you've, you've got a hundred quid with, you know, and the petrol perhaps would be paid by someone who, you know, you've got to give a lift back to Dalston or somewhere. Um, and I just thought, well, I can't be doing that. You know, if I get, if I do an after dinner gig, uh for clients i'm getting thousands of pounds why why would i do it for 100 pounds and it's in extra and they might not even like me yeah yeah so i thought no i'm not going to do that with comedy and then i hit upon this idea why not just take a show to the edinburgh festival and then i'll just do my show 
as I want it. And then if no one comes, well, that's fine. Well, I, I want to talk to you about that. Um, definitely want to find out more about that and also tell people where they can see it. Cause you're not only doing Edinburgh, you're doing some previews, but before I, I get to that, I yes, we're teasing ahead to it. We're teasing we ahead. Don't turn off now. Oh no. Exactly. There's plenty more value to come here. <laughs> um, but first the travel and weather. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you was, um, do you prepare differently for the different types of bookings, you know, whether it's a, a, a sort of keynote or an MC or after dinner. And, and if you do prepare differently, how, how is that different? Yeah. So keynote would pretty much be the same every time. So it might be a 30 minute or a 40 minute or an hour and they'll say what they want. And the sort of things that I'll talk about is how to use humor in business or how to attract publicity for your business by getting editorial content rather than selling adverts and stuff like that, how to come across well in the media. Um, and those sort of things are pretty much set in stone. I've got my slides and I'll do them very much the same every time and perhaps just do a slightly different top and bottom depending on who the client is. Yeah. Um, but being an MC, that's going to be different every time. And so one of the difficult things about being an MC is that you'll probably have to have more than one briefing with the client because first of all, you've got to get all the information from them about who the people are and get the individual introductions to all the different speakers. But then you need to, you're going to be the person that sets the tone for their event. So you need to know what tone do they want. Mm -hmm. And often with me, someone will have seen me, I'll be recommended and they'll say, well, Jeremy's funny. He would give you a bit of a lift to your event. So the organizer will book me because I'm funny and then his or her boss will then spend all the time worrying that I'm going to be funny <laughs> um, because they, they will think, oh, he might be inappropriately funny. Yes. So I'll have to sit through meetings and they'll say, now you're not going to swear, are you? We had this stand-up comedian once and, the, and I'll go, no, I won't do that. That's why you've got me. Yeah. I am I am the default booking for when you want a stand-up comedian, but you're worried they're going to swear. Then then you get me. So that so that kind of goes without saying. But still, they'll go right. Okay, and you won't you won't mention. Yeah, <laughs> they'll yeah. say something about whatever the latest disaster is. You won't mention that, will you? I think why would I mention that? You know. So and now you've put the, the idea into my head. <laughs> yeah. And I go, no, no, I won't do that. And you won't do, and they're just all the sort of things that clearly whoever this uh, MD of the company is, has, has had a few sleepless nights worried that, oh, I hope that man doesn't say that. And I go, I'm not going to do anything bad like that. Yeah. I never have. And so I think I've got a reputation as a safe pair of hands, but you do have to have lots of, lot of these briefing meetings and then, oh, we'd like you to come and meet the team. And you think really that's no benefit to me at all. Yeah. But you know, if they're paying you quite a bit of money, you just go do it. Yeah. And it's just, they would want to look at you or it's the same as like on the day of an event, they'll often want you there three hours before it starts. And you think, I don't need to be there three hours before it's, but they just need to see you sitting there. So they know that you're not stuck in traffic. Yeah. It's not something else for them to worry about in terms of the event. Yeah. yeah. And they'll come across, you know, the, the boss and the organizer and then some exec will all come up. Okay, is there anything you need? Can I get you anything? And all you want to say is, I could do with another couple of hours in bed, really. But I'm here now. <laughs> and what about after dinner speaking, Jeremy? How do you prepare for that? Yeah, so with after dinner, I will uh, ask them about who the audience are and how old they are and what interests they have. And uh, are they male or female or mixed? or And uh, is there any particular... Uh, 
um, tone they want me to adopt. So typically with after dinner, I'll do 30 minutes. Sometimes they'll say, well, can you do an hour? And I'll say, I can, but it'll be a bit boring mm. because even I'm bored of myself after an hour. So I'll always try and steer them to half an hour. And if they want 45 minutes, I'll steer them to 35 minutes and 10 minutes of questions. Yeah. Um, but I realized that a lot of after dinner speakers, they will just do the same set in the same order every time. I make mine slightly different in that I have it in little five minute bricks, I call them five minute bricks uh, that will be like, I'll say to them, would you be interested in my story about when I commentated at the Paralympic Games, London 2012, when I made this disastrous mistake? Would your people like that? And yeah, okay. Do you like it when I made a terrible mistake doing a commentary on an FA Cup final? Yeah, we'd like that. <laughs> Would you like the face of Elvis on a bit of Stilton cheese that I reported on for the BBC? Oh, yes, that looks good. Yes, I think people are like that. You know, and I'll just send them. These are my sort of stories with interesting titles, like the day Brian Clough punched me, or the day I was ambushed live on air by a man who said he was Jesus and had a machine gun. And all of those sort of titles, and then they'll just say, you would like that, like that one. Oh, I'm not sure that that one, you know, that might be a bit sensitive. We won't do that one. Okay. Um, just so that they feel like they've had a little bit of, because I've, I've realized I've got about three hours of after dinner stories. Really? I will just pull together the half an hour that fits best with them. So, they, so it's almost like example, a bespoke, but, you know, you've got the stuff, but they choose what they have. So it feels, yeah, yeah great. So, if, for example, I'm ever in Nottinghamshire or Derbyshire, I will do the story about the day Brian Clough punched me because he was the manager of Nottingham Forest and Derby County. And he's just a legend in the East Midlands. So it just goes without saying they'll get that one. Yeah. Um, and if it's if I was doing a, a, a cheese convention of <laughs> British cheesemakers, they would definitely get the face of Elvis Presley appearing in the blue veins of a Stilton cheese. Um, <laughs> which I filmed for the BBC. And when I got there, they'd already cut it up. So it was a disaster. Most, most of my stories about disastrous things have happened. I don't like to do a show about my brilliant moments. Here's all the awards I won because that's not entertaining. That's just coming off. So I, I tend to put in all the dreadful bits because that's what people, and all the, you know, the horrible things that celebrities said. And, you know, it's like the behind the scenes gossip. That's what people want to hear. Yeah, exactly. They don't want to appear me be, see me being sensible. They want to hear all the goss. So that's what. Well, it's, what it's true. Actually, it fits with the as I, as I say that in comedy rule is it has to go from good to bad or bad to worse. So yeah. good news stories aren't really as as funny potentially as bad news stories. That I mean that was one of the things I was going to ask you is what's your process for putting a talk together and how do you choose which stories? So for for your after dinner speaking, I can see that works. And how do you pick the stories? Or if you do, how do you use stories in your keynotes? So usually with uh, a keynote, I'd, I'd start with the message and work out what is the key message of a keynote. And a, a, the reason it's called a keynote is there should be just one key message. Mm. And I think a lot of people, when they go wrong, they try and put three or four ideas in and really just want one idea and then lots of different things supporting that one idea so it might be bits of research it might be surveys it might be stuff in the news it might be stories it might be case studies examples um, anecdotes from real life and I'll put all of those and then see how they support that one central message yeah and then um, every time I make a point you know because most key bits might break down into sort of four sub points I think for every point I need a story that illustrates it yeah and 
and that's how I do it really. I mean, and, and because my background is journalism, you know, and I had, so I started, I started in radio in 1986 and my last was in 2014. So in between that I was doing radio and, and with radio, you can just, uh, just tell a story with, with TV. I found the difficult thing is that you, um, when you come to, uh, telling a story about something that's happening in the news, um, the person sitting next to me, who'd be the picture editor, that will be putting the video over the top of my voice, will be saying, "What we're we going to put over the top of that?" And I hadn't really thought about that because if if you say, uh, "And the man ran away to Bolivia and lived on a ranch and became a coffee grower," you can just say that on radio. But on telly, they're, and they're thinking, well, "What do we want now? A map of Bolivia? Do we need to see coffee being grown?" Uh, and it's the same with the keynote. Really, you've got to have things that illustrate that yes oh that's a really good that's a really good way to put it and one of the things i often hear working with people is that they don't feel they've got stories now did, i i can't imagine you had this trouble but have you ever thought oh what am i going to use or is have you just had an abundance of them and if do you find that with your clients and if so how do you advise them to get their stories out yeah so i encourage them to keep story diaries Mm-hmm. and um when i'm spending a day so i do a, a, a day session on corporate storytelling mm-hmm. and with that i'll just say to them right okay what message do you want to get across about your firm now is there a case study that illustrates that point is there a client you have that you change this and usually they'll all individually go oh no i don't think there is really but if you put a group you know if you do it with a session say between four and six people uh, one of them will go, oh, well, there was that man um, from Leeds the other day who said, that, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or get them, you know, often the people I'll be training will be the team leaders. And I'll get them to go back to their teams and say, give examples of where our company came across as looking really good. And how can we illustrate that? And they're, you know, often it, you've got to go to the people that the experienced people in the company yeah. that have been there years or the people that are at the front line. You know, maybe the salespeople that go out in the cars and actually go to places and see stuff. Yes. But um, it's, it's amazing the number of speakers that will speak on behalf of the company and they haven't gone to their PR department and asked for good stories about their company. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. First port call, go and find out what's the good news that you can say. Big companies will have it on their websites, but just go to the, the press and PR department and they'll have loads that you can use to illustrate. There's a good tip there. And hmm. let me see, do you class yourself? as a speaker or a performer a speaker okay. i think um yeah i don't think i'm really a performer so i i went to what where are we now so we're uh, april 2018 so in january 2017 i'd, d- I'd done my stand-up course the previous uh, year and then i thought right i'll uh, Somebody in the Professional Speaking Association, Julie Holmes. I don't know if you know Julie. Yeah, she's coming um, on the show, actually. <laughs> is she? Right. Okay. Well, Julie's brilliant. She's an American. She's an entrepreneur. She developed this thing called Hey Mike, which is a Bluetooth video mic, which is genius. And she speaks about all company selling, but also she likes a bit of fun. And she said, oh, hey, Jeremy, I'm going to this comedy acting class. Do you want to come? And, and I just said, yes, straight away. That's just how she talks. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm looking forward to hearing the yeah. same voice. She said, it's, it's seven to nine every Monday night at King's Cross at the poor school. And I went, oh, that sounds great. The poor school. 
you know, I thought that was their Ofsted rating, but it wasn't. It's, <laughs> it was just, it's called The Poor School. It's on Pentonville Road, just left out of King's Cross to past McDonald's. And uh, I went along to study comedy acting because I thought I'd be a better storyteller yeah. in my speaking work if I learned some acting skills. Because yeah. I've never been an actor. I did a bit, I was in a couple of productions at university, but I realised that I was just being me, really. It's a bit like when Eric Morecambe would be in a play what Ernie <laughs> Rise wrote. And he would just be Eric, really, yes. even though he might be playing Julius Caesar or Anthony Cleopatra or whatever. He would still just be Eric. And that's how I am in things. Right. So I thought I need to learn how to do a bit of acting to bring my stories to life. And rather than just saying, and then she said this, and then I said, I could actually be the characters in it, do the yeah. voices and the faces and everything. And I'm quite good at voices, but I'm no good at acting. So it just looks like me. Yeah. <laughs> So I went along to that, and after about three weeks, the teacher, Maddie Anholtz, who's a, um, a comedy actress, she's done shows at the last four Edinburghs, and after about three weeks, she came alongside me and she said, you're really good at this, but you just need to go with it. Stop fighting it. Just go with it. And we would, I think we were doing something where you had to walk around the room as someone of high status and then walk around the room as someone of low status. Yeah. And I don't think there's hardly any difference between, I was just walking <laughs> Because I don't know how to do that. I know how to do a funny line and a funny voice and a funny face, but I don't know anything about acting. And she was, and she was a little bit scary. She said, just go with it, come please. You just, you can do this. And I realized, I'm quite self-critical. I realized that I was, in the top half of being funny in the group and I was at the very bottom in terms of acting so in comedy I was great acting I was terrible uh, I did that course and by the end of it I really felt I'd got a lot out of it and so I've, I've gone back and signed up every term since off you got that off now can you do the low status and the highest have you have you progressed oh, I, I can walk I can walk like anyone now yeah <laughs> I've, I've nailed walking so and that's really helped that's really helped I'm often one of the best now at the conference. It's just when I open my mouth, it goes wrong. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So um, I've nailed the walking, but yeah, and it has helped. I think I, I think my stories are better because I'm better at acting now. Okay, uh, but but it was excruciating, and um, I felt embarrassed. Um, and then I'd, I'd relax into the group, and then each time a new term start, new people came, I'd feel embarrassed again, which is a bit of a weird thing you'd expect for a speaker, but. Um, I just knew that they were all better at me at the acting. I think I think with acting, it's it's hard. It is hard to let go because you have to sort of let go of your ego, and in order to to really get into the character. But it, it's hard, you know. It's really hard to sort mm. of not be self conscious and not worry about those things. But um, well, yeah, good for you. I'd say yeah, it'd be interesting. I I think you're underselling yourself as a performer. But um, mm, I'll sure I should look forward to seeing you in your show, and I shall give you some feedback on whether I think you're a performer. I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Well, what I think all speakers should do is that we all know which bits we like and which bits we're good at. And we often tend to just work on those. And actually, my big tip to anyone listening to this would be work on the bits you're not good at. Because it's... Because I've done a lot of sports commentating with an event like, say, the heptathlon, where uh, we just saw at the Commonwealth Games... um, this, you have the seven events and you you know you might have one of the performers like Johnson Thompson Katrina Johnson Thompson won for Great Britain now she's really good at the running things and the jumping things but she's so but she's quite slim so she's not very good at the throwing things and actually 
that's what that's what she's worked at. That's how she's become the gold medalist because she's worked at the throwing events. You know, if you throw the javelin or yes. the shot put or whatever, put, yeah, you're never going to be as good as the the heavier people. You're always going to be better at the jumping and the running because you know you're lighter than they are. But yeah. that's what I think all speakers should do: find out what your what your weaknesses are and work on those, and that's how you'll overall get better. But none of us do that. We all just, you know. I, I like the funny stuff, so I work on being funny, but perhaps I should work, you know, I realised I needed to work more on the non-verbal bits of my talk. And so that's why I did the comedy acting. And you continue to do so. I think that's a really great tip for people, actually. Mm. Now, do you, do you think there's a different, I know you cover all the bases, but do you think there's a different approach if you want to get into becoming an after-dinner speaker versus an MC versus a keynote? Do you, I don't know if there's any, if you think that. Well, I, d I know the, the the sort of the wisdom of people who've been speaking a long time is you've got to pick one thing and just do it. Mm. And and people, I got fed up with people in my early days saying to me, "You've got to decide, Jeremy. Are you an MC or are you a keynote speaker or are you an after dinner?" And I go, "I'm all of them." Yeah, but if you're going to get to the top, you've just got to pick one, really. And I just thought I don't want to pick one. So I think my advice to anyone is. Um, Pick the one that you're good at and also pick the one that you really enjoy. But then if there's another one that's also going to earn you an income, do that as well. <laughs> I like that. Cool. So, you know, because I remember, I don't want to say who it was, but some a very senior figure in UK speaking said to me, you've got to decide what you are and then you've got to come up with a name. Like you've got to be the something guy. Oh. And I went, well, I'm not anything guy. I'm a bit of MC and a bit of after dinner and a bit of a coach. And a bit of that, but see, I can't. I I don't think I could make a living as a keynote speaker. There's very few people that can just earn a living as just doing that 40-minute talk every time. There's yeah. a guy called Jeff Ram who's really successful. He's about the only person I know that just does that and makes a living from it. There's someone like Richard McCann who does a really good keynote, but also he'll do the coaching as well. Yeah. Um, and I think most people do that. Alan Stevens, he'll, he'll be an MC. He'll coach media people um and he'll do keynoting so i don't think that we should just restrict ourselves i don't think i could make a living just as a keynote speaker i know that october to christmas i could just do after dinner and i'd be making a fortune but come january and february i would not have the money to go to keep my gym membership up because in january february no one wants an after dinner speaker because they've all had their parties no one's going out yeah they've got, you know they're all too fat and no one's organizing <laughs> events it's not all the all the conference people have spent their money so it's not till april that they've got a new budget coming in or something yes so my my year january february i do loads of one-on-one -on -one coaching typically with um the professional speakers who want to be funny or corporate speakers that are a bit dull and want to be more engaging yeah i know that october november december i'll be nailing it as an after dinner and the rest of the year there'll you know there'll be the conferences with the MC and the keynoting and august i know will be dead because who hires a speaker in august because everyone's away and, and we so that's why august so that's that's where i'm heading to <laughs> that's that's why this year in august i'll be doing 27 gigs at the gilded balloon teviot in edinburgh because you know people go oh, how can you afford to take all that time away from your speaking i go it's in august yeah, you know, I might I might do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one coaching in August, but no, I don't do any on-stage speaking. So it's an ideal time for the Edinburgh Festival to happen. Talking about one-on-one -on -one coaching, I just wanted to explore with you 
what you said to uh, corporate leaders and how you work with them to make their talks more engaging what sort of things do you share with them to get them to uh, to do that I tell them don't use so many facts and use more stories because stories will stick with people and I I when I do a keynote I have this brain hat which was knitted for me by a brain hat manufacturer which is actually my mum who's 81 and I gave her a pattern I found on the internet of a uh, it's just like a beanie hat but you can make it look like a brain so it's got so it's gray and it's got all of the bits of a brain it's split down the middle and then I stick velcro to it and then I throw balls up into the air and catch them on my head um, and I'll throw little hard blue rubber balls and say like these are facts I'll throw them into the air and of course they just bounce off the head and then I coat them in this brightly colored sort of velcro and say this is like this is your fact the rubber ball the the brightly colored velcro going around the outside that's like a story you're wrapping it in some kind of emotion so uh-huh. people remember it and then it sticks in your brain and i throw it up in there and it lands and catches and sticks to my brain and i'll say that's what you've got to do put stories in put emotion make people feel something rather than just showing them pictures of your headquarters building and tell people that you're 100 years old, your firm's been doing this, no one cares. All the audience cares about what's in it for me. And they love a good story because at school, if you're good, you get a story. And if you tell an audience you're gonna tell them a story, they instantly are are very receptive and they'll remember it the next day. So I, I do a lot with that and I'll say, right, okay, so give me all the facts and then how can we support every fact with an anecdote? Nice. And, uh, you know, they'll do the usual thing. Oh, I don't think we can. I don't think we can. But they always will find them. So so pictures and one bullet point per slide, stories. Mm. I love that. I don't know if it's a metaphor or analogy, but that, that really sort of that sticking thing is brilliant for uh, illustrating how stories work. That's brilliant. Yeah, there's a little video on my, I, my YouTube channel. has got about 200 odd videos, some of them very odd. And one of them is me with this brain hat on and throwing these Velcro balls and it's sticking to it. And I think people just remember that. They go, oh, yeah, you're the guy with the the, the sticky balls. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's me. That's yeah. You, you I, could have that epithet. You're the sticky balls, man. They, that, to sticky, I don't want to be the sticky balls, man. But I did once say to somebody that uh, a load of fluffy balls is not the title of my talk. It's the prop <laughs> slip. That's excellent. Right. Yeah. Now, before we get on to the standard questions... Thank you mm. so much for all those tips. But I want to talk about your show. Okay. Because um, it is, how would you describe your shows? If you, can you sum it up for me in a sort of sentence, what people are going to get when they come and see you? Yes. Yeah, so I can sum it up by just telling the title, which is quite a long title. And it's called After Dinner Stories from My Disastrous Broadcasting Career. <laughs> so what it is in a nutshell, it's all the bits that went wrong. It's all the mistakes I made, all the things that I thought were going to go smoothly and they didn't, the dreadful interviews, the awful celebrities, the big commentary mistakes. And it's all about, you know, the anxiety of it, really, because I think there's a lot of humour in that. I'll just tell you how it came about. Yes, I was at the So I was at the Edinburgh Festival last year. And when people say the Edinburgh Festival, usually what they mean is the Edinburgh Fringe. And yep. you know this, you've, you've done comedy up there, haven't you? Yes. Um, and so... 
when I said about going to that comedy acting class, remember in January last year, and the teacher, Maddie Ann Holt, came alongside me and said, just go with this. Honestly, you can do this. She then had a, her, uh, her one-woman show at Edinburgh, so a few of us from the group went to see it. And then I went to some other shows, and my wife's cousin was in a show, and he's South African. And my wife's South African, so afterwards we went for a drink with him, met the theatre director from this theatre in Johannesburg. And my wife was saying about me doing comedy, meaning I go to these comedy classes. I think he thought I was the teacher. <laughs> and uh, he said to me, oh, we have our own theatre in Johannesburg. You must come and do your one-man show. <laughs> And instead of saying, oh, I don't have a one-man show, I just do 30 minutes to corporates, I heard myself saying, yes, that will be great. And the reason I did that was because in comedy acting classes, we'd been taught improv. And yeah. the, when you do improv, you always say yes and. Yeah. You never disagree with anyone. So when he said, you must bring your one-man show, I said, yes, that will be great. We're coming in December for a wedding. And it, so it ended up that on December the 12th, I did a show in Johannesburg so in August when I agreed to it I didn't really have one but I thought by December I'll have one because I've got that three hours of after dinner stories I'll just pick the best ones put it into an hour-long show make it a bit theatrical uh, and so I did it and it sold out got great reviews in the papers even though our flight got delayed by a day and I got there an hour and a half ahead of the audience not having oh. slept for 24 hours not having shaved or anything and I literally had a shower a shave and then walked in and the audience were arriving and I just met them and talked to them. Wow. That's, that's yeah. really, one thing I was going to ask you, this is a fair, doing an Edinburgh show, doing that show was a fairly new thing for you or a new version of what you do. Mm. Were you anxious before that? Yes. So I was anxious because I know that it works as a 30 minute after dinner. I didn't know if it would work as an hour long theatre show, but it did. It, it worked really well. And then uh, for the Edinburgh one, all I've done is I've put in more of the British celebrities. Yes. You know, I've, I've put in all the global ones for the South African audience. For example, I do quite a lot of, I do a, about interviews that have gone wrong. I talk about an interview I did with Matthew Kelly. Oh, right. It went really badly. I didn't think in South Africa they'd know who Matthew Kelly was, you know, from Stars in Their Eyes. Yes, and yeah. So he's back in. Christopher Lee, the old actor who was oh, in Hammer. the Dracula films. Yeah, yeah Hammer. I, I wasn't sure if they'd know about him. Um, but I did put in stories about David Beckham and people I thought, yeah, they'll definitely know who that is. So I've, I've tailored it again for more for a British audience again. And then I applied to, you, well, you, you know about with Edinburgh, you've got to apply to the venues, haven't you? Yes, yes. It's not like you just get selected. People think, oh, you must be good as Edinburgh. Basically, as long as you can pay a venue to have you, you can get in. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's if you can afford it, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I applied to the big four, the Gilded Balloon, the Assembly, the Underbelly and the Pleasance. And I thought, I don't think any of them will take me. So I applied to a couple of smaller ones. And the, the two smaller ones were really keen. And I thought, mm, that doesn't seem quite right. I, I wouldn't want to go to anywhere that would have me. I want to go to somewhere where I'm lucky to be, you know, where there's other big names on that will be sold out and they'll go, oh, we won't, we can't get in to see John Bishop. We'll go to see that bloke next door we've never heard of. But that was my plan. Yeah. And uh, the Pleasant said, no, we've never heard of you. And I said, thank you very much. And then amazingly, the Gilded Balloon said yes. Oh, so fantastic. 
And I was offered either a 50-seater venue or a 150-seater. And of course, the sensible thing would have been to go on for the 50. I've gone for the 150 because I just thought, let's go big and see what happens. Absolutely. Um, no, it might be. I'll only have about five people in there rattling around in the audience. But maybe on weekends, it'll be full and it'll be brilliant. Yes. What is it called again? So it's one thirty every day at the Gilded Balloon Tevia. And it's called After Dinner Stories from My Disastrous Broadcasting Career. And... It's on every day, August the 1st to the 27th, every day, an hour-long show. So I don't know how to, people say, oh, you'd be really tired, but it's not like working down a coal mine, is it? You've only got to work for an hour. Well, it, dep- it depends if you're flyering yourself or if you're giving that job to someone else. I'll just throw some money at it and get some poor people to do my flyering. <laughs> no, I'll do, I will do some flyering. So flyering, for those that don't know, is handing out flyers. I think it's a made-up word, but people say flyering. And it's just when you hand out a little A5 sheet of shiny paper saying, please come and see my show, it would be better than some of the others. One of my key ways of getting people to come to my show is to say to them, I will be at a certain point on the Royal Mile during the day, say three o'clock, and if you come and see me there, I will do you a FIFA announcement. Now, one of my claims to fame somewhere in my broadcasting career for 11 years years i was for the fifa video game oh now i don't know about video games but there's it's the best selling video game in the world from fifa 06 up to fifa 16 it was my voice and so if you have kids that play the game you'll hear my voice saying goal for west ham scored by andy carroll you know when you're speaking at a conference a lot of speakers will identify with this you want people to come up and say to you at the end oh you were really good you know, you, you want that sort of thing and you want to be able to swap cards and maybe you can sell them a book or a bit of coaching or something like that. But people often don't come up because either they're embarrassed or they think you don't want to be troubled, but actually you really do because you lo- love people to say you were great. <laughs> what I do when I'm doing a conference, I'll say, if anyone would like a FIFA announcement for your child, I will shout into your mobile phone, your child scoring for their team in the voice on FIFA. And I will be over there and I'll point to like an edge, edge of the room. I'll be standing there. and then. Usually three or four people will come and I'll say, oh, what's your child's name? Oh, it's Jonathan Wilkes and it's for Tottenham Hotspur. And I'll say, goal for Tottenham scored by Jonathan Wilkes. And then because I'll shout it like that, a few other people come over and and a little queue will form and I'll swap cards with everyone. And I reckon every time I do that, I get maybe two one-on-one coaching clients out of it just by being a stupid voice on a video game. That's brilliant. I think if I do that in Edinburgh, I'll say come and see me you know free free thing for your kid they're surely they're gonna have the decency to come to my show the next day aren't they i would have thought so i think yeah, if they're, no really, if they're any had... sort of decent person they would yeah i mean if they're just someone that just wants to steal a voiceover <laughs> then that's fair enough but surely to goodness we don't live in a world where people wouldn't come to my show after that kind of treat let's hope not but the, and I will put a link to the show, to the tickets, so people can pick up tickets directly from the show notes as well, so they can get them before Great. they're sold out. For those that don't want to go to Edinburgh, and it's a long way, isn't it? And it's in Scotland. I'm doing five shows in London, and then one in the New Forest, one in Nottingham, and one in Sudbury and Suffolk, Smashing. which is where my parents live. So I thought I'll just do one for them, so they don't have to go to Scotland. Well, we can definitely um, put links to those in the show notes as well, so people yeah. can get along and see you without trekking all the way up north if they don't want to. Exactly, yeah. Brilliant. Good. Well, I'm, now, I'm glad we covered that off, and people should definitely go and check you out in that. 
got three standard questions I want to ask you before I let you go. Okay. If that's all right. First yeah. one, what's the best thing speaking has done for you? Um, the best thing? Well, I think it's earned me a lot of money. Very good answer. If I'm honest. Mm-hmm. I, I know some people say, oh, it's, it's a vocation. I want to change lives. I don't think anything I do really change lives. I might turn quite boring corporate speakers into more, ent- more entertaining ones. But, it's, you know, I'm no nothing groundbreaking really um i mean when i stopped broadcasting in 2014 it's because i found that if i got an after dinner gig it would pay me 10 times as much as a day doing a 10 hour tv reporting shift at the bbc wow so i could either do 10 hours at the bbc or 30 minutes after dinner and get paid 10 times the amount so you know i think that's a no-brainer isn't it absolutely so yeah so the main thing has been the money, really. I mean, I'm, I feel very privileged to be able to earn money for something that I do love. And often speakers say, oh, I do this job for nothing. I love it so much. And I, pr- I probably would as well. But you know what? It's much better when you get paid. <laughs> Absolutely. I yeah. think that's either you either earn an absolute fortune or it's just put into perspective for people what BBC pays. I can't. I will leave that one up to the, the audience to work out. But uh... well, I think I get quite well paid for after dinner because the thing is, when you get good at something, if someone says, "Oh, um, would you come and do this?" and the the ladies do a lovely lunch. You know, I do, used to do loads of cricket dinners. Or the ladies do a lovely lunch. No, I'm sorry, this is how much I get paid. Oh, that's not in our budget. We've only got this much. And you know, in the early days, I go, "Oh, I'll do it." Now I just go, "Oh, I tell you, I tell you who who you could get for that much." that's really good and I refer them to other people that do, would do it for that fee nice one. but you just ha- I think you just have to I whenever I do anything on fees I just write down this is what I want to get this is what I'll accept and this is what I will walk away if they offer below it the other day a certain number of thousand pounds for something and they offered me 200 pounds less than that and I said no and my wife said to me that's mad why didn't you should have done it and I went no because I decided that was that in 2018 that was my minimum fee and she went but it was only 200 pounds less than that I go yeah but word will get around yeah yeah I don't I don't know if it will will it <laughs> but well, it will I do now. think <laughs> yeah I do think you, you just have to say like that is that is what I'll do it for and yeah. if they offer less you just have to say no and sometimes you think oh that, 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 it's it's a, it's, there was one at Twickenham Rugby Stadium and I could walk to that from my house but it was a couple of hundred pounds less than I'd asked for and I didn't do it well I think you're and right that, you've got to hold two guns haven't you otherwise it'll start yeah. chipping away and then and then you, you you know and other people you've got other clients that you charge to, so it's, it's a goodwill with other clients as well I think exactly yeah and, but, but when the night of that event came and I was just watching telly that night I thought you know what I could have been literally 10 minutes walk away and a fortune for doing that but I said no and I did think I was a bit stupid but I don't know I think you have to stick to your guns really I think so good okay now what's the worst thing that's happened at a gig for you um once in Johannesburg I was speaking at an event called the Empress Palace and I was giving a talk on how there that is a place it's just near the airport Empress Palace and I was giving a talk on how to use humor in business presentations and it was in 2010 and again I know it was 2010 because it was the year the World Cup was in South Africa and so that's why I was there right and my wife had said to me you can't wear the this suit for this talk because your trousers are too tight you've put on weight and I said no it'll be fine 
And she said, no, no, honestly, it's, re it's really tight at the back now. And I went, look, it's my, it's my lucky suit. It's my first big gig in South Africa. I'm going to wear them. And then um, they didn't have a proper AV desk. You just had to plug your laptop in at the siege. And the plug was very low on the wall. And I bent down to plug my laptop in and my trousers ripped at the oh, back. No. And it was about a six inch split. Just as the guy was saying, please welcome from the United Kingdom with a talk on how to use humour in business, Jeremy Nichols. Nichols. Jeremy Nichols. And I came on <laughs> and just sort of went from side to side without turning my back to the audience at all, like a space invader. And then eventually I just said, now the thing is, I realised I needed to show some slides and so they would see the back. And I said, now, the worst thing that can happen when you give a talk on humour is you split your trousers. And they laughed a little bit. And then I said, it happened. And they laughed a bit more and showed them and laughed hilariously. Um, so even in a moment of crisis, I still used the rule of three to get the laugh. Yes. And then uh, did the finale talk with my trousers flapping at the back. They could see my red underpants. And at the end, I said, now, are there any questions? And this tall Afrikaner guy stood up and said now tell me this do you always wear those trousers for this book <laughs> like I'd packed a pair of comedy trousers and I said no no they just actually have split oh, no. and, uh, so I think that was that's probably the moment that I'd, I'd lie awake at night sweating about well it sounds like you made it work for you so that I ha yeah hats off trousers off. I always, I always take a spare pair of trousers because the only because I only had with me jeans and um a black tie dinner suit because I was also doing an after dinner while I was there. I didn't have another pair of suit trousers, so I went back to my room and just put the 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 black trousers on with the you know the shiny stripe down the side like you have on a dinner jacket. Oh, so dear. I looked the fool, but there we are. There you go. You made it work. So there we go. Right, final yes. question. There's a book called Think and Grow Rich by a guy called Napoleon Hill, and in that he has like this fantasy mastermind group, and he ha he sort of runs ideas past it. So I like to find out from you if you could choose three mentors. They can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional. Who would you mm. choose and why? Oh blimey! Well, I suppose Bob Monkhouse. Oh, nice. Um, now, probably a lot of people will know Bob Monkhouse as a presenter of game shows like Celebrity Squares and um, The Golden Shot and things like that. But he was a brilliant after-dinner speaker, and he was someone that just collected funny lines, had them in books, and he's, he's just a genius. And I have probably about five Bob Monkhouse books in my speaking library. And if you ever want to get a book on speaking it's called the speaker's handbook by bob monkhouse when it was originally published i've got it in hardback it was called just say a few words brilliant I'll so i have here yeah yeah put a link to that yeah uh, how much three am i allowed am three, i three yes so bob monkhouse um stuart lee who's my favorite stand-up um, comedian yeah who's uh from birmingham he's probably about 10 years younger than me maybe and he just is relentless in that he doesn't care what the audience thinks he doesn't care about getting laughs and he's very very repetitive and it, i just can't stop laughing whenever i see the guy i think he's a genius i've seen him at edinburgh for years and years um uh, so i definitely have him and if you if you want to have a good time on youtube just put stuart lee and the Cafe Nero loyalty card, 
is a brilliant routine he did at the stand in Glasgow uh, when he goes rants about Cafe Nero loyalty cards and another one when he rants about which member of Top Gear he hates the most. Yeah, that's that's, that's hilarious. Just goes on and on and on because <laughs> it turns out it's it's Hammond. You think it's going to be Clarkson, but it's Hammond because he's not even a real hamster and they call him the hamster. All uh, right. Cool. Uh, so I'd have those two and then one more as a mentor probably Winston Churchill oh okay just because he I've studied him a lot and the way he constructed his speeches and the brilliant thing about Churchill compared to other politicians is he wrote his own speeches and so it was like cigars he'd say you know he rolls his own meaning he writes his own speeches and just the structure of them uh, I mean he, he wasn't particularly good at delivering them he almost sounded a bit drunk sometimes and he had a bit of a speech impediment, but I think he probably was a bit drunk because of the pressure of being at war and stuff. Um, but they were just to have, have turned a whole nation around at a time when the whole of Europe was crumbling and he galvanized this nation just with the power of his words. You know, everyone listened to it on the radio and read about it in the papers. That was just genius. So I definitely would have Churchill. And the interesting thing is that he would break rules like people talk about his blood sweat and tears speech and yeah. actually he talked about blood toil tears and sweat he did four things but because we only remember three is the rule of three toil always gets forgotten um. so i would have churchill in as the more sensible of my three because obviously i've gone a bit frivolous with Stuart lee and bob monkhouse i'd have churchill there saying come on guys we've got to have toil yes yes that's brilliant brilliant well jeremy thank you so much for your time today for sharing your stories and your tips uh, for people there and mm. yes i will put a link into the show notes so everyone can come and check you out now where if people want to book you to be an after dinner mm. speaker or keynote or an mc um or want to work with you where should they go where's the best place to go yeah just go to my website which is my name jeremy nicholas.co.uk smashing and i will also go to jeremy don't go to dot com because uh an actor and it's not me okay so avoid it's dot co uk brilliant dot co uk yeah and what about you on twitter can people find you on there or or linkedin yeah. or instagram twitter twitter is at jeremy underscore nicholas underscore is my mother's maiden name so it's at jeremy un- <laughs> or nicholas by the way you didn't laugh initially but i've heard it now so <laughs> yeah uh LinkedIn, I'm Jeremy Nicholas on that. Instagram is for young people, and I don't. I think I did open an account, but I'm not sure I've ever really taken any pictures of anything interesting. No worries. Well, we'll find but, you on on Twitter and and LinkedIn. And one final thing, I just wanted to double check. I'm assuming hmm. your mother's changed her mind about me being boring. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She said she just said that because she didn't want me to throw away a, a perfectly sensible career. Well, Jeremy, yeah. thank you so much. Um, really appreciate your time and good luck, or I should say break a leg with the previews and with your Edinburgh show. And I will definitely be checking uh, them out. Yeah, I will see you up there. Lovely. Thank you very much for having me on your show. You're welcome. Well, there you have it. I hope that's helped you. If you feel like you've got some engaging stories to share and you want to have a crack at after dinner speaking, although to be fair, There was some great stuff there, whatever you do with your speaking. Please do go along to see Jeremy's show either in Edinburgh or one of the previews to see really great after-dinner speaking in action. Oh, and if you are going to the Edinburgh Fringe, 
you're welcome to come along and check out the play I'm in, The Amours of Lily Langtry, where I play one of the most beautiful women in the world. It is a comedy. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. As always, thank you so much for listening and don't forget to leave a review if you enjoy the show. Arrivederci, alvidesen, bless, adjo, dovecenia. Don't be a stranger, mate. And don't forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book, Straight to the Top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.